Hello everyone and Happy New Year. Dan here with a quick note before we start properly. This episode was recorded three weeks ago when the COVID vaccine had just begun to be introduced into the UK and before our collective horizons were darkened by the new COVID variant which has made everything much more fraught at the moment. So we don't talk about any of that and the news section is quite jolly. I didn't edit it, however, because of some very good news for Kirsty's family, which still holds true, so I thought that should stay in there. Um, all the recommendations that we make are still current, and you'll get all the links in the show notes. Next week, in the grand tradition of films coming out in January being terrible, we are going to be returning to the Halloween franchise in one of its least prepossessing installments, Halloween Resurrection. However, this week it's a new year, so we're beginning an all-new strand, 90s Gothic, and we're going to be talking about a different kind of January film release altogether. Oh yeah, and if I catch any of you taking down your Christmas decorations before January the 6th, you're dead. everyone if this is your first time listening to the show then welcome and if you're a returning listener welcome back and thanks for sticking with us this show talks about horror horror in film tv other media other items which we think of as adjacent to horror and sometimes other things from our lives which we'd like to talk about just because that's who we are our discussions aim to be fun, intelligent, and hopefully useful if your interest in horror texts comes from a creative or an academic perspective. But be warned, we do tend to swear occasionally, and if it's anything less offensive than the C word, it won't get bleeped. So we are probably not safe for your work. In this episode, we're beginning a new strand on 90s gothic cinema with a discussion of the 1992 film Bram Stoker's Dracula. Some movie podcasters introduce themselves by subverting a line from the movie they're about to talk about. Therefore, I'd like to take this moment to say, I am the monster that breathing men would kill. I am... Dan. Otherwise, T.D. Velasquez, but you can call me Dan. I'm in Greater Manchester, and today I have the pleasure of being joined by... Uh, Kirsty Warrow, who has quite literally crossed oceans of time to be here. And also... Stella Gaynor, who couldn't think of anything to say. <laughs> and last but never least, a man who has never knowingly been impotent with fear. Although I have been impotent with vodka. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> we're going to overshare in this episode. Uh, <laughs> in Winterton in, uh, in Cheshire. Superb. And we are recording this on the day that they've announced... Well, not just announced, but done the first COVID vaccination in Britain. So, joy of joys. And Kirsty? Yes. I I think you've got some good news on that front. Yes, our our house currently seems to be plague-free. 
Oh, <laughs> superb. Yeah, so we have one day of our incarceration to go. Um, and the phrase that's been in my mind this week is um, and to, to describe the general atmosphere of the four members of my house is gate happy. I used to work in a prison. <laughs> <laughs> many years ago and uh, it was a bit of kind of yeah kind of uh prison parlance that i picked up of the you know inmates just before they're allowed to get out they get a bit crazy <laughs> um so yeah gate happy is what we are at the moment <laughs> one Fair more enough. day gate happy <laughs> the joy is written all over yes. your face yeah. which is wonderful very excited <laughs> what are you gonna do uh, first where are you uh, gonna go drive my car <gasps> and walk to work and listen to <laughs> um podcasts <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Calm down. I know. <laughs> Fantastic. That literally is the, my idea of heaven right now. So, yeah. <laughs> Sounds good. Ah, great. Now, uh, today's movie is a special movie for all of us, I think, and it's going to be a fun discussion. Before we move on to that, um, does anybody want to talk about anything in the world of horror or life? I do. That... Go on, Stella. Um. I saw, well, actually, my friend told me that um, The Thing, Carpenter's The Thing, is in cinemas. So if you fancy going and seeing it on the big screen, uh, Odeon is showing it. So what? obviously, depending on your tier and all that gubbins, um, yeah, go and watch John Carpenter's The Thing in uh, Odeon cinemas, if you fancy. That would be can. brilliant. Yeah, they have been re-releasing mm. older movies, haven't they, in, in the ground, so there's nothing else to put on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. uh, oh... Why that happens when I'm a shielding and b living in a town where the Odeon is closed? Oh, they, they've never reopened. Yeah, uh, your nearest one would be Great Northern, wouldn't it? But yeah, it's on at Great Northern. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wow, yeah, the thing. And it's one in Crew. Oh, that's fantastic. That's near me. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I, I think <laughs> we could meet. That's, meet, that's Howard. We could meet Howard. Yeah, and go and see the thing. That's actually Howard's nearest cinema. Is it? Yeah. His crew. Wow. Yeah. One of my nearest as well. So, yeah, but he's he, in a he different crew. county. That's incredible. I know. That's. I was thinking, why is it? Is it not? Is it not? He's like, in I was going to say, but there are plenty of cinemas in Shropshire. Um, I say plenty. Uh, <laughs> four, five, maybe. No, more than that. Six. Six at a push. Um, well, he, he lives in Whitchurch, doesn't he? Yeah. So is, Whitch, is, is Whitchurch nearer to Crewe than to Shrewsbury? It is very close, yeah. It's basically, oh, okay. yeah. when I'm driving home, I follow signs for Whitchurch and stop before I get to Whitchurch. <laughs> Go too far. <laughs> okay. Well, if there's any stalkers out there who yeah, want to know yeah. where Howard is, <laughs> yeah. there you go. Yeah, yeah, and Ian, we, they, we're just narrowing <laughs> down for them. Excellent. They just need to stop at that point and then listen for familiar voices. It's like the beginning of a horror film. <laughs> yep. Fantastic. Oh, great. Yeah. Well... My friends, I hear the familiar thrumming of a sinister orchestral music, which I'm going to layer in under this discussion. So let's pretend we can hear it right now. We are about to talk about Bram Stoker's Dracula as the first part of a new ongoing series that we're going to do called 90s Gothic. Uh, basically, this is something we've been talking about for a while. Um, specifically, Kirsty Stella and I discussed it a while back because 
There is actually, there was a strand of gothic horror films in the 90s that are worth considering of a, as a movement in cinema because they tended to be produced by the same studios um, or, or some of the same studios at least and I suggested that we did this to Kirsty and Stoddard and they both said yes immediately that we had that discussion <laughs> a video was released by a YouTuber called Patrick H. Willems who does very good video essays on movies even though he has a very bizarre habit of putting his middle initial in parentheses why do that Patrick? <laughs> um, but his video which is called the 90s gothic universe is very good and it kind of touches on, on most of these films in half an hour but we thought we'd go ahead and do ours anyway because we're going to look in more detail at each individual film and basically um, I'll go with his thesis with, which is about why the films came into being, which is basically due to the box office and critical success of The Silence of the Lambs. Um, made studios think we could do serious horror that will appeal to mainstream audiences and, and possibly court awards, as well as making lots of money. Um, and this coincided with um, the script of... Bram Stoker's Dracula being um, sent to Winona Ryder, who at the moment, at the, at the time, was getting was trying to rebuild her friendship um, or professional relationship with Francis Ford Coppola after she had dropped out of The Godfather Part Three at the last minute, which caused Sophia Coppola to make her one and only acting appearance in movies to dreadful reviews <laughs> and probably <laughs> scarred her for life. Um, and basically uh, Ryder was talking to Coppola about working on another film um, and Coppola noted that she had this script and he was very interested because it was Dracula so he said I'll have a look at it and it, he ended up wanting to direct it and producing it through his American Zoetrope production company Here occurred the frightening and shocking history of Prince Dracula and the woman he loved. I have crossed oceans of time to find you. Yeah, Dracul. There is a sinister, darker side to him. I find irresistible. Met any man with such a passion for life. He is unlike any man. What are you? Vampires do exist. This one we fight, this one we face. He can take on many forms. He is both young and old. He can appear as mist as vapor, as the fog, and he can vanish at will. Oh, my love. The power of his evil desire has no end. You've got to go to him. You've got to love him. She is a willing recruit and devoted disciple. She is the devil's concubine. Join me in eternal life. Your salvation is his destruction. I want to be what you are. 
I want to see what you see. I want to love what you love. Take me away from all this death. mistake. He must be stopped. It was Zoetrope, but it was done for Columbia Pictures, and between them, those two entities are connected with most of the gothic movies of the 90s. So from here we had Mary Shelley Frankenstein, then we had Mary Riley, which is based on Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, um, and then very late in 1999 we had Sleepy Hollow, uh, directed by Tim Burton. Um, and also another movie which isn't connected to them production-wise but probably wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for the success of Bram Stoker's Dracula was Interview with the Vampire in 1994. So I think that it's <laughs> worth considering all, all of these films as a, a movement. And also... Um, Three quarters of us here on this podcast were, were impressionable teenagers at the time when, when these <laughs> movies were released, and they they definitely had a big impact on on us and our tastes in horror and our, our cinematic education. I was so, probably twenty, so I may even have been nineteen, but uh, I was twenty in nineteen ninety two, so almost definitely I was twenty. Right. So. Well, on the cusp, on the cusp, and you know, you so you obviously saw it earlier than us as yeah. well. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it'd be good for us all to talk about our first kind of uh, exposure to this movie. And um, I'd like to start with Kirsty discussing mm -hmm. this for no other reason apart from the fact that she asked me to <laughs> uh, ask her first. So, Kirsty, yes. how did you oh, okay. first encounter Bram Stoker's Dracula? So, this is, I mean, I, I'm obviously, I'm aware that, that it's a, a big film for three of us, um, but I literally would not be sat here. I wouldn't sat here talking to you, having done my degree, having, doing my job, if it wasn't for that film. Honestly, <laughs> just, it was such a formative film. So I was kind of putting together a bit of a timeline today about, um, so I've, you know, De define myself well as a professional fangirl as in that I am you know kind of film studies teacher and thinker and now talker and writer occasionally um, uh, because of me being a fan of certain things and I think that probably kicked off with Dracula um, so uh, when thinking about today what I realised is that the film um in the US came out in November 92. It didn't hit cinemas here till January 93. Um, yeah. It didn't get a home release, not a full proper video release until November 1993 in the UK. Um, and in that whole period of the film, I mean, at that, so at that point, 93, I was 13. <laughs> but right. I was obsessed, like properly obsessed with the idea of this film and the marketing that I'd seen. And I, I went around and I, um, like any, any little, you know, review or article in any magazine or newspaper that I came across, I had to have it. Like I had to have it. 
Um, otherwise, I would like, you know, my my life would be over if I didn't have it. <laughs> my room was just covered in, you know, kind of bits about this film. I had bought several versions of the poster. I'd recorded, like, <laughs> you know, with the video, um, recorded the trailers, different versions, waiting for it on television, different press things, the, you know, the Annie Lennox music bloody video, because um, that had bits <laughs> in the films in it. Um, I'd read the, you know, I'd read the novelization of the book. I'd read the actual, the original novel. I had, I think I'd got the comic or graphic novel that came out. Um, I had also, um, what else did I do? Oh, there was like, it was one of those films that for whatever reason, Columbia thought, oh yeah, well, we'll release a video behind the scenes thing, which was a separate entity to the actual video. I managed to get hold of that before I'd actually seen the film. (laughs) So I managed, I think just through sheer, uh, you know, kind of pester power, managed to get my dad um to buy me i think the film on vhs for must have been christmas 1993 um and you know this is the time when we didn't i didn't have a video player in my room it was just the family video player so so my i've got two younger siblings i have to say my dad i'm so grateful that he was you know kind of liberal enough to allow me to see this 18 rated film Mm. when i was so young and obviously watching it by now I, i realized that that was that was very that was a very you know kind of brave decision on his part i think um yeah but i just you know i it was i was so in love with it before i'd even seen it um and remained in love with it even when i had seen it um and it's the first film that i remember because i think of the the um the behind the scenes featurette video um, documentary that I was really aware of, you know, things like production design and costume design and, you know, the kind of actual production process. So I think I learned about how films were made because of that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so literally just the, you know, it was such an important film and one that I, my, you know, burgeoning 13 year old gothy fangirl self, you know took so much joy from um yeah and i was really scared in watching it again <laughs> that it was gonna, <laughs> so gonna somehow be terrible and i'm so i mean we'll obviously talk about it later but i'm so glad that it's it, i it, it's not terrible i really love watching it again <laughs> so yeah that's Fantastic. that's yeah when did you last watch it Kirsty? uh sunday <laughs> before sunday oh before sunday i think probably i don't think i've seen it since since probably we were at uni, Dan, I'm not sure if we ever watched it together. I certainly watched it a lot at uni, yeah. and I don't think I've seen it since no. then, so I think we might have watched yeah, it Yeah, so together. it's been 20 years, since, <laughs> at least, since I'd, you know, since I'd seen it. And I think that partly that's because, you know, you, you get older, don't you? You sort of reject your, you know, kind of younger childhood self. As I'm, I'm, you know, more grown up and my tastes have advanced and stuff, but uh, yeah, yeah, I, I felt similar. Yeah, but yeah, it's it was really emotional going back. Mm. Um, so, um, in marked contrast, I'm gonna um, go to Ian now, if if that's all right. Ian, <laughs> you talk about how you discovered it and what you remember of it. I remember being quite excited for it because I like films with vampires. I and I didn't enjoy it at the time. Um, as I was saying before we started recording, my main memory of watching it is just laughing a lot. Uh, 
<laughs> and in the pub afterwards, just doing Keanu Reeves wooden acting impressions <laughs> and no. saying, Umbertum prefer a lot. <laughs> That's all we had to do to corpse, make each other corpse for the, about the next few weeks, was just go, Umbertum prefer. <laughs> and, uh, but, but, uh, well, we'll talk more at length. I actually, re- I literally haven't watched it since it came out, which, from what Kirsty was saying, must have been 1993 then. So I was. What did you say, November was, 93? No, yeah, yeah, well, no, it came out, it was November 92 in the States, and then I think it was, um, j- yeah, January 93 it came out here. Yeah, so so I watched it probably in Crew as well, because I was in Crew at the time. Right. Oh, God, oh, I haven't escaped that place. Um, <laughs> but I, I also remember loving the look of it to start with, and I think being a sort of, I'm too cool, you know, long hair. Um, in age 20, I didn't get all the cool stuff. I just thought it was sexy. But I do not think that anymore. Um, so, uh, yeah. But, yeah, so it, it doesn't it doesn't really hold a massive place in my heart. But, um, but I, I, I remember being disappointed because I really thought I'm going to like this because I loved... I love vampires and and all these things. I just found it just my main memory is just finding it laughable. Which yeah. which I still do, but uh but I find well, many other things as well. Yeah, I mean it's very it's very funny. Um well we'll get into that. Um so Stella, how about you? What's your story with Bram Stoker's Dracula then? Well, I don't remember the first time I watched it, but I do remember being about 13, 14, and us having a copy of it on VHS and watching it a lot. Like, most weekends I'd watch it. There was a period of time when I just watched that and Interview the Vampire, and that Whoa. was it. And that was all I watched. <laughs> those two on, on, on repeat. Um, so I do remember being obsessed with it. I remember, like, um, it's like in art at school, repeatedly drawing things from it uh trying to remember i'm trying to like copy the poster and, and stuff that's probably still lying wow. around somewhere um so yeah there was a definite obsession but i don't remember the first time i watched it i think i just i don't know just absorbed it second that i first watched it and and there it was i was quite obsessed with it but i have watched it a number of times over the years um and it was on telly not that long ago sometime over lockdown it was on telly so i did watch it again when it was on TV, and uh, yeah, still, it was still good. But then I started watching it again on, when were we last talking, was it Sunday? Mm. Um, and I yeah, got about I halfway so. through it on Sunday. And um, I didn't realise until I was watching it on Sunday just how funny it is. Like all all the, you know, when, when he's first at the castle with him and he's like, I don't drink wine. <laughs> <laughs> like, I just not, I've not noticed that before. And I was like... Since when was Dracula such a bitch? <laughs> What's wrong with him? <laughs> so that was nice to see something new in it after after all these years and after watching it so many times when I was a kid. Yeah, I, I had a weird double experience of A, watching it and realising that I actually knew everything, like every beat of it was in my head still, mm. but also seeing things that I'd either never seen before or seen but never quite understood before, yeah. and we'll get into that. Um Okay, so my story with it is I came to it a little bit later than all of you, I think. 
I would have been 14, 15. Uh, this is a very key week in my development. Um, without this week, I might not be here either. Um, so, uh, basically, on it, I think it was towards the end of the school term, in about 1996, and we, went, we had a school trip to Camelot, the now defunct theme park. And um, on that day, uh, at about three o'clock, it just started pissing down. So basically, everybody left the theme park, but we couldn't because the school coach to take us back wasn't due to pick us up till about half four. So we just ended up wandering around a deserted Camelot in the pissing rain. <laughs> um, and going on the ghost train a million times. And they had this crap ghost train that was totally not frightening. And we just went round it and round it and round it. Um, so, uh, And then immediately from uh, getting home from that, um, I just taped from on ICV the night before was the Hammer film, The Brides of Dracula, which was the first Hammer gothic horror film that I would ever see. So I sat down and watched that and, and, and was blown away by it. And I've suddenly realised possibly the reason why, in a way, the most perfect setup for getting, for, for watching your first Hammer gothic horror film is to go on a crap ghost train a million times <laughs> because then the film looks amazing. Um, but I did that and I loved it and then and immediately wanted to watch something else similar. And I realised that Bram Stoker's Dracula was would be available in the video shop. Um, and I remembered it when it came out. I vaguely remember seeing clips of it on TV and stuff. And, and I, I, I feel like Top of the Pop. So presumably, you know, I saw the Annie Lennox video. So I just got my dad to go and get the video out for me. And then watched that on Friday night. And A, th those two films just are an, a, an amazing pair. Um, Brides of Dracula is basically an, the adventure of what Van Helsing did next. And it, and even despite the title, it doesn't have Dracula in it. It, it has other vampires. Um, so, I, so I watched that and loved it, and then watched uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. And it's like, oh, this is the prequel, <laughs> and it's obviously Anthony Hopkins as as Van Helsing, and um, there is no connection between the Brides of Dracula and Bram Stoker's Dracula, except that Peter Cushing was still alive at the time that Bright. Bram Stoker's Dracula came out and his one word review of Anthony Hopkins's performance as Van Helsing was super. <laughs> he was so lovely. I thought you were going to say um, shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, no, um, yes, the super Anthony Hopkins, he said. Um, but... Um, so I, I just kind of thought, right, now they have to make the Brides of Dra Dracula remake with Anthony Hopkins, and I, I want more of this. But basically, so there was that, and then th there was there was just all the, the erotic stuff in the movie, which was just mind-exploding um, <laughs> to a 15-year-old. And uh, yeah, fairly soon after that, I bought the film on video. It was... It was out on Cinema Club for four ninety nine, um, and um, and and carried on buying films like that. And I bought most of the rest of the films we're going to talk about in this series as well. Um, and uh, yeah, and then basically it started me on on a rabbit hole that that I've always gone down. And um, and I obviously watched Bram Stoker's Dracula a million times and carried on watching it 
when we got to uni and I read the script, which was published in a beautiful illustrated edition. Um, and I had the uh, the soundtrack album and I went straight from seeing the film pretty quickly. I, I read the novel and... Um, you know, the novel was released in... Well, when I read the novel, it was 1997, so that's the centenary of the publishing of the novel. So it was a good time to be reading it. Um, and, you know, I was kind of amazed that most... Uh, the film does have most of the things from the novel in it, although you read the novel and you kind of go, where's the love story? Mm. Mm. Um but uh, we'll, we'll get to that. Um, and then, and I also just, you know, started watching every version of Dracula that I could find. And obviously, after for me anyway, after Bram Stoker's Dracula and reading the book, every other version of Dracula uh, is hugely disappointing because they all cut out like about a third of the book of its events and characters. Whereas Bram Stoker's Dracula in a crazy way goes, no, we're going to include everything. And we're also going to put more stuff in that wasn't in the book. <laughs> um, so, uh, and and I, so I, I watched it regularly till about two thousand and two, and then have not watched it again really till now. Um, but um, ever since um, I have watched it, it's just been running through my head. I've been uh, I've been reading about it. I've been thinking of the music. Um, oh, you know, and love song for a vampire, for God's sake. Um, yeah, I, I, I put that song on a mixtape I made for someone who I fancied. Um, I will not mention her name, but... She's dead now. If, if you're listening... <laughs> no, no, she, she's certainly not, Ian. I was going to say she knows who she is, if she's listening, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, so it's um, it's integral to me, uh, really. So that's the, our background in terms of this movie. Um, but I think the first thing that we should think about in terms of looking at it as a film now, um, and I think we should talk about it in full detail, as with every film in this series, because they're all pretty much based on classical texts or they've been filmed before. Um so, you know, even if the person listening has, has not seen the movie, they've probably seen another film of it or they've read the book. And we want to be able to talk about the ways these adaptations differ from other versions and things. So I think we should just go full spoiler. But also I think that we should just not assume that the listener has seen the film. So if you do talk about something spoilery, we'll have to explain the context to make sure it's clear what it is. Um, yep. I think that three of us have, have read the book. So Kirsty, Stella and I have read it. And Ian, you have not? No, I mean, I think I've read bits of it and I kind of have read about it a lot, which is awful. But I've kind of... It's like Sean Hughes, I've read the preface. <laughs> <laughs> right. I've read the preface. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, no, I've never actually read it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So uh, I mean, you know, say about it without having read it. This is well, one of those books, isn't it? Yeah. In a way, it's 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 in your it's in everybody's blood to a certain extent. But um, <laughs> you know, one thing that this movie did do is push me towards the book. And although I was something I learned in reading about the film for this is that it's called Bram Stoker's Dracula, 
which I always thought was kind of intended as a statement, like this is the definitive version of the book. Mm. But it's not. That's not the reason why they called it Bram Stoker's Dracula. They they called it that because they couldn't call it Dracula legally, because Universal Pictures owns the right to the name Dracula, which makes sense. Because I suddenly realised why the Hammer film was not called Dracula; it was called Horror of Dracula. And like, there's there are other films of Dracula that are just called Dracula, uh, but they they they're all made by Universal. So this 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 movie was not necessarily trying to make that statement, but it did push me towards the book. And, you know, um, Coppola and the screenwriter James V. Hart were clear in saying that it's worth making this movie, even though it's been filmed a million times, because the book has never been properly represented before. Um, and that is what pushed me towards reading the book, which... Um, I haven't reread any of it. I did watch another movie just as as research for this because there is another film called Bram Stoker's Dracula, and I, I now know that's why it is. And it's a 1973 TV movie by Dan Curtis, who you'll probably know of Stella, the, mm. the producer of Dark Shadows. Um, and it's funny that it this might be a coincidence, but it's written by Richard Matheson, and it introduces the two elements that the 90s film does in that a um it has the plot basis that dracula is looking for the reincarnation of his lost love Mm -hmm. and also it's kind of explicitly stated that dracula is actually the historical vlad dracula um which no other dracula films do but these two both do that and they're both called bram stoker's dracula um so I wanted to reread the novel or bits of it to see if I was right about which bits were in the novel um, and which bits have been invented for the film. But I, I, I didn't have time and I've not been and my copy of it's in the attic or something and I and I didn't have a glance at it. But um, but anyway, I think I know it fairly well. Um, uh, Stella, mm. I'll start with you. How do, how do you feel? What what's your um, feeling about the relationship of the film Bram Stoker's Dracula to the novel Dracula by Bram Stoker? I think because there are lots of other Draculas, um, I feel like it's the most loyal without being a direct adaptation, if you see what I mean. So that, that they never claimed to be a direct adaptation, did they? Or not? No, what I'm saying is I don't think they did, but I think that the fact that it's called Bram Stoker's mm. Dracula kind of gives you that impression, and I think the publicity that, kind of pushed that. Yeah, that it is. So yeah, so without being, uh, this is an adaptation, you know, of of this old famous book. Then I think it's as close as you're gonna, as we've got so far in the multitude of Dracula films that there is. Um, I think the authenticity of it is sort of steeped in steeped in in the gothicness and sort of and steeped in dracula being being frightening i think certainly thinking about it as a in a modern ish or contemporary ish realization of the monster the fact that he is monstrous is fairly close to the book whereas you know as visually monstrous yeah modern yeah. reincarnations of him where he's just you know can sometimes just be a a bit, Suave bloke. a bit of an irritation more than anything else. <laughs> <laughs> so I think Bela Lugosi, sense... we just called you an irritation. <laughs> he is 
rotating in his grave right now. That's what I was thinking of the, uh, the Stephen Moffat version. <laughs> uh, well we'll get to that at the end <laughs> sorry continue Stella yeah so I think that's it really just that the authenticity of Dracula as the as the creature or the monster that he is feels right mm. in, in, in Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula is that the right oh. way of saying it Coppola Coppola Coppola, Coppola. Yeah. Coppola. Um, I'll say that reminds me time now. there's one other thing that I forgot to mention um that was an indirect thing that this movie caused me to do. Um, I went to my um, high school drama class and we had a costume design module, so I designed Dracula's cape. Of course. But I very deliberately (laughs) made it authentic to the book, i.e. nothing like the amazing robes that Keiko... Eiko Ishioka? Oh dear, I can't pronounce her name properly. Um, The costume designer of this film... You know, dresses Dracula incredibly in, especially at the start, in flowing red robes red and thing. things. But in the book, he is described as as just wearing a, a very plain black cape. So that's what I designed, and I tried to make, uh, you know, I couldn't have colours on it, so I tried to make it interestingly shaped. You try <laughs> doing that on a high school budget. Eiko <laughs> um, Ishioka could probably have done it, but. Um, Anyway, I did my best as Not a 15-year-old. With, with, <laughs> Do you still with, have it? Um, I think it disintegrated in nah. about three days, to be honest. <laughs> I think that's how badly made it was. Um, Kirsty, you, even among this group of, of commentators, I think you qualify as the super fan. You read, you, <laughs> you read the, the comic adaptation <laughs> yeah, and everything. I will um, that. And you've also read the book. Yeah. So how, how, how do you um, relate the film to the book? As an adaptation. Um, I mean, I think the 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 thing to note is that, or is the 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 structure of the book is is diary entries and you know and kind of it's it's told from mul- multiple narrators. So, yeah. um, in um, Bram Stoker's Dracula, they kind of really go with that. Mm. Um, so we have you know kind of uh, Jonathan's diary entries and his letters and Mina's diary entries. Um, and then, you know, then we have when Van Helsing comes in, we start to get his voice as well. And, um, uh, and yeah, and kind of other narrators as well, but, you know, kind of crucially not Dracula because Dracula doesn't have a voice in the, the original novel. He's not a storyteller. Um, so I really liked yeah. um, looking at it. I mean, obviously, when I first saw the film, I had already read the novel, but I wasn't in that kind of mode of <laughs> critical analysis. How are they different? Right. Um, it was just like, oh, my God, finally. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I think I noticed, I, I mean, I, I remember, like, you know, in the years that have passed, I, you know, that was a, a kind of an observation that I remember kind of making to myself, but it was nice to rewatch it and kind of go, oh, look, you know, they were really kind of on board and it becomes it's sort of you know the 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 use of kind of dissolves between voices in it um is not obviously not quite like the novel but it does i think help emphasize that sort of sense of um the kind of choral nature of the the way the narrative is structured which i really really like and i think it does add yeah, to its kind of well gothicness said. as well because mm. it it adds you know you know more people's kind of emotional responses <laughs> to the, you know the craziness of this monster and although he's not a narrator the monster is also massively massively emotional so it's all very heightened isn't yeah. it so yeah. yeah 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 absolutely i mean i i do remember 
reading the book and as I said, you know, wondering where the love story was. So in um the movie in this movie, um and, and not in the book and not in most movies, it's it's very strongly focused as a romance. Um, the tagline of the movie was "Love Never Dies," yeah. and basically, it's positioned that Dracula's main motivation as a monster, as a vampire, is love. Um, he becomes a vampire because his uh, the love of his life kills herself at the start of the film, mistakenly believing that he's died in battle, um, and therefore he essentially sells his soul to Satan in in a scene which later got Francis Ford Coppola sued by the uh, the descendants of the historical Vlad Dracul, who basically <laughs> said, no, you know, he was not a Satanist. <laughs> um, uh, that happened in the late 90s. Um, and then, uh, you know, later in the story, he discovers that Mina, who is the heroine in the book, um, is actually the reincarnation of Elisabetta, who kills herself. Um, and therefore, that's the reason he comes to England to to seek Mina. Um, in the, obviously, none of that's in the book. Although, because the book is never told from Dracula's point of view, you can sort of, or at least I tried as a young reader to sort of imagine maybe that is going on. It's mm. like you know the the very key scene in the film where Dracula appears to Mina in England and gets her to, or she fairly willingly drinks his blood um that's in the book but it's a scene that's narrated from characters who are outside the room and they open the door and find mina lapping at dracula's chest is like what's going on and then pull her from the room and she's saying unclean 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 which is in the movie so i was just going yeah that 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 was really romantic how did you know you shouldn't have interrupted um uh, so i, I didn't I, finish I, yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean you know it's just the least you can do um what i did think um that i've ne never occurred to me before you know it's just wondering why they chose to bring in the kind of romance element which is such a key part of the movie um and i don't think it was necessarily this cynical but I did realise, wait a minute, making it a love story horror movie very cynically enables them to appeal to both teenage boys and teenage girls. For yeah. teenage boys, you've got tits, lots Yay. of tits, uh, <laughs> you know. Um, for teenage girls of a certain mind, you've got amazing lush costumes, you've got romance and, and all, and all yeah, that sort of stuff. Yeah, can I just say, I think this so. is also the best looking cast as, I, as, a, as an ensemble <laughs> I think has ever mm. been assembled by Hollywood at any point. <laughs> Interesting. I, was, I, was I mean, say something very sexist, um, but also at the same time pulling you up on being sexist, Dan. The frog. <laughs> well, yes. The four beefcakes. <laughs> but um, yeah. But I'm yeah, going to yeah. say my main memory of other than like of watching it, and I was looking out for it on my rewatch. Um, other than other than Keanu's Keanu's impotent with fear, was I remember going Winona Ryder in that scene you were just discussing is wearing modern modern knickers. Yes. And, yeah. That, and I, that's and a I, and well known and that's, that's one of my main things that's imprinted on my brain. Because that's how men work. And I was waiting <laughs> for that scene and went, I wasn't imagining it. It's been 
nearly 30 years and uh and yes there they are and i can remember i can remember them like yeah. it was only yesterday what yeah. color no, are they? no pantaloons they look in that scene white and cottony so very uh -huh. nice. so uh an on winona rider so, <laughs> so ian um Given that you, you've not read the book, but obviously you, you're familiar with loads of other films of Dracula and things, and you and you came to the movie with expectations of a vampire movie, how did it or did it not, now or then, meet with your expectations? I think, um, well, in it, then I think I was just not, I was just not ready for a movie like that. I was just going, oh. You know, I think I think I was in Kevin and Perry mode. <laughs> I was just too cool, and this was shit, and for girls, and <laughs> there was, and there was some, and it was all like love, um, and yes, there was pretty people in it, but I couldn't care less. That didn't make me want to watch a movie um, that much. And now I'm 48. Um, <laughs> guess I identify with Dracula. <laughs> 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 so, uh, but no, no. Now, in many, many ways, I see. Yes, I can see why it would skew towards teenage girls more than boys. I would say, um, if we're going to get reductive like that. But at the same time, as a sort of massive camp, over the top masterpiece, it's uh, got it all going on. Um, yeah, and I think it kind of made me think of the way things they added to the narrative have become almost permanent in the law of Dracula yeah. in that way. Like if you say to anybody now, the Vlad Doom Paler thing obviously comes from people knowing that that's who he based it on. He had a choice of one in Scotland and one in yeah. Vlad Doom Paler and he was going, oh, should I make it a scary person in Scotland or should I make it a scary fountain? So, so, but, but I, I think, would have gone with Scotland, but... Well, I think, uh, anyway, he didn't. Um, <laughs> and, and that kind of, also it's weird because Eastern Europe does have a massive, massive tradition of actual vampires. Well, not, obviously not because vampires are <laughs> but, but scared of them over there. <laughs> they're properly, they're properly, you know, you find lots of things buried. People, people do cut their heads off mm -hmm. corpses in Eastern Europe, yeah. even to this day. So it would Whoa. seem weird for him to have picked Scotland, um, and it's probably sure. maybe we wouldn't know about the book. It wouldn't have just it wouldn't have just chimed just right like it did. Um, but um, but yeah, he just does everything right. This film, including the things it does wrong, because it's <laughs> it's, almost, it's almost a carry-on film. In lots of right. yeah, I can't. Can it's I, like yeah, can I, best. It's, I, like, it's like Peter Greenaway does a carry-on film. <laughs> <laughs> That's an amazing <laughs> sentence. Oh, it's so big. His dagger, and um, <laughs> and all these all these sort of, these sort of uh, terrible. You know, I don't drink vine, and you're a man of good taste. <laughs> um, You've turned into Arnie. Yeah, I was about to say because it reminds me of Ice to see you. <laughs> they're kind of on that. They're kind of on that level. So, so in a weird way, the script the script is emotionally very good and. Dialogue-wise, it's fairly awful quite often. Mm. Um, some of it is, but I think some of it is so hilarious. I think not always unintentionally. I know that's why it's uh, it's that's why it's still a weird, weird film. Yeah. Um, and it's not scary 
for me ever. I wouldn't say I wouldn't ever class it as a horror movie because it's never scary because it's so big. Yeah, there's never a moment when you feel the particular tension of a certain scene. I think the whole thing flows through, and it's more the film's emotional, but it doesn't ever put you in the place where you would think you would be if this was a more conventional horror film. I yeah. think it's not a creepy film, but it's it's a beautiful film, and now I can appreciate. Oh my god, in camera effects, obviously mm. in 1992. Well, 1993, so I was just about to watch, at some point that year, I was going to watch Jurassic Park. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of where movies were. And then, I mean, the fact that everything was done, it, and it, now I can see, God, it looks like a 50s film in the mm. best possible way. Yeah. You can see the paintings, you can see the matte effect. Yeah. yeah. See, the miniatures. See the dry ice rolling over the set. And it's kind of the artificiality that's kind of delicious about it. Um, yeah, and I can see why that didn't get me because I tend to like stuff that's gets me on a character and an emotional level. So style over substance, I tend to veer away from. But this one, I'll forgive because it's just so uh, huge, and and everyone's everyone's chomping at the furniture. Yes, yeah, it's almost as if, and we'll get more into this. But it's almost as if every single separate element of the film is shouting so loud. It's 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 got its ma- maximum energy into it. I'd say everyone is chomping at the furniture apart from Keanu Reeves, who is Stella. You know that. <laughs> Stella has just put a fatwa on you, Ian. Um, I I, I read that they cast him with a very clear eye on the the, the again sexism the teenage girl audience, and it, but and it worked. would have it worked. They probably would have gone with Christian Slater, but he turned it down. Um, which is interesting that he ended up in interview with the vampire. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's like, oh shit. Although, well, that was because, yeah, because well, uh, Phoenix died, though, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, that's, that's true as well. So, he, yeah. yeah. I'm going to so do a vampire one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, he really having recently rewatched Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, I'm not sure I would have loved Christian Slater's idea of an English accent either. Oh, no, God. Um, but. Okay, so we're gonna. There's so much in terms of the aesthetics and the performances and stuff that we'll bring in. Um, well, I, I want to talk about, and I want to get your take on the idea that I think that the the emotional flow of the movie mainly comes from the music. I would say that I mean, as we just touched on the individual moments you don't always fully feel but the 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 flow the emotional flow of the story and the film is very much to be felt and i think that is in large part due to the music by wadjet keelar i'd almost say this movie really ought to be called wadjet keelar's dracula because i think his music tells the story and it gives you the characters and in fact i was struck on rewatching it that there are only like three moments in the whole film and they are very short moments where there is no music the music is just constantly telling everything and like from the first second of the columbia pictures logo at the start it's just got that ominous clanging which pulls you right in it is great 
Um, and not only watch Jack Key Loud, but also the, the great Annie Lennox song, which is so perfect. Oh, I can't. I just can't. <laughs> um, but also, um, I, uh, I did notice that um, in the credits, I, I wasn't sure where it is in the film, but um, there is Diamanda Gallus in the credits, who Ian was talking about on this podcast a few weeks ago. Um, Ian, am I pronouncing that name correctly? As far as I know, Diamanda Gallus, yeah. She's... Uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, that takes me back to that period as well because I think I said before we used to take naughty substances and put, turn out all the lights. This is one of her things where she just <laughs> reads from Leviticus, but it has satanic chanting, a witch's language, and and it, I said this to somebody on Twitter who I didn't know, just like on a Diamanda Gallus thread you end up on. And I, and I think it must have been a craze amongst people that took LSD in the early 90s to turn it. <laughs> everyone, everyone in this thread seemed to have done it. You basically <laughs> record on, turn out all the lights so you cannot see anything and then drop acid and then sit there and you listen to, and you listen to Diamanda Gallus reading, going, going right. clean. Um, and she's amazing. <laughs> Her voice. Oh yeah, of and, course. And, and when it when it got to the end of the first half an hour, the first side, me and my friend ran screaming into the streets, hallucinating demons and all sorts. Um, <laughs> that sounds great. It, wow. Yeah, it's made me very scared of having children of my own. Um, things like that. Oh, <laughs> oh gosh. Take acid and listen to scary, scary satanic music. Um, so, so Ian, did you recognise the, the Amanda Gallas' contribution to this movie when you watched it? Because I didn't know until I saw her name in the credits. I could hear her voice. It's when it's when Winona's possessed and things. Oh yeah, I can hear it now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah, I, I, my... I believe that's when the Amanda Gallas was her vocal talents were brought in. <laughs> You've been so good to me, Professor. I know that Lucy harbored secret desires for you. She told me. I do know what men desire. But yeah, right. so you should yeah. really listen to um listen to her on YouTube, dear Amanda mm-hmm. Gallows. I, I think I really will. To, uh, this is—it's called "This Is the Law of the Plague." That's why, that's why it kind of came back out onto Twitter when COVID started. Because right. it was about AIDS. This is the law of the plague, so it's a sort of weird concept album. Um, God, okay. really during the height of the AIDS epidemic, but she's reading Leviticus and in a crazy screeching witch's voice and right. satanic voice. And yeah, it's 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 absolutely insane. Well, any man hath an issue out of his flesh. Because of his issue, he is unclean. Every bed whereon he lieth is unclean. And everything whereon he sitteth. And clean. And who 
That's brilliant. I shall really put a link. Acid to. <laughs> so so nice again. Thank, Thank you very much. much. <laughs> um, I, I just want to say a bit about Wojciech Kielar. He, he was a Polish composer. Um, sadly passed away now in the year 2013. He was 60 when he wrote the music to Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is, was his first English-language film. And I think he made only two more English-language movies. He'd won all kinds of awards for his Polish stuff. Um, he worked with Roman Polanski on The Ninth Gate and also The Pianist. Um, obviously, Polanski... Uh, from a Polish background as well, and the pianist about the Polish uh, World War II um, experience. Um, I actually don't know um, why or how somebody approached him to score uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, but I just think it's one of the great movie scores, and it's got an, an like an Ennio Morricone kind of feel to it. I almost feel like sometimes watching it, it's as if the music was written before the movie was shot and, and they've just choreographed it to the music. It's so fantastic. Your impotent men with their foolish spells cannot protect you from my power. <laughs> I condemn you to living death, to eternal hunger for living blood. Kirsty, you look like you have thoughts. Yeah, no, I was just, I, I, I was thinking the same thing, actually, when I was re-watching it. I was like, am I... I'm, I, I was thinking to myself, I'm fairly sure this is an original score, but for some reason it just feels older. And I know that it's yeah. been yeah. used, doesn't it? It's been sort of co-opted in other yeah. productions since. And so, you know, I was wondering maybe it's that that makes it, but it, or it does just have, you know, this very kind of, yeah, much more kind of classical era kind of feel to it, doesn't it? Um, yeah. yeah. I, can I, I, is it, is this a good time to talk about the costume design, production design? Can I? Go for it. Yeah, so I was, you know, again, I, I agree with you in terms of the music. I think the music is really affecting. For, but for me, I'm a visual person. And so it was always the visuals mm. that kind of grabbed me. So the cinematography by um, German-born um, cinematographer Michael Bo uh, Ballhouse. Bo Ballhouse, Ballhouse, yeah. yeah. Um, but the costumes, which I know we've already mentioned as being um, uh, designed by uh, Iko Ishioka. And I'm yeah, gonna yeah. hope that's right. I um, and I was just looking at right my IMDb profile, and um, just uh, <laughs> kind of it's like, oh yeah, of course. So she designed the costumes also for um, Tarzan Sings the Cell, and also Tarzan Sings the Fall, both films that I love and that have this, you know, kind of big operatic kind of aesthetic, and um, where right. the, you know, the kind of the costumes are a massive part of that. Um, and I just, you know, I spent my help, well, many of my teenage years just looking at those costumes going, I want to, like Winona Ryder's costumes in particular. <laughs> it's yeah. like, I want, like that red dress. I feel like if, oh, <laughs> I want that red, red I want but, that red dress. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they, you know, but they, yeah, I mean, the um, but Sadie Frost's costume when, you know, after, um, after Lucy's dead, 
you know yeah the lizard frill costume thing amazing Uh, amazing 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 i mean not at all realistic probably not at all authentic for the period um but it doesn't it doesn't matter it's you know it's part of the you know the the, you know we've talked about it having this big kind of uh over the top um camp aesthetic but it's baroque isn't it it's visually Mm. and musically thematically kind of baroque and and expressionist isn't it so um I think you know. Well, the- I mean, the film is summed up in the first minute. I think, well, apart from well, you've got a procession of things which kind of are emblematic of the movie. You've got the music coming in, which I've just talked about. You've got that amazing symbolic piece of storytelling where the cru- uh, the cross on top of the cathedral falls down and is then replaced by a Muslim crescent. And it's kind of swamped by smoke and and all that stuff. And then you've got the first shot of Dracula himself wearing that amazing wolf armor that that looks like it's muscle sinew. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that suit of armor is just a stunning piece of design. But also, it kind of stops you and makes you go, "What?" Because it so doesn't look like armor. Mm-hmm. It's you know, it's clearly plastic or it's some like kind of wood. wood. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you just think that is such a bizarre choice, but at the same time, it it's amazing. And th- th- then they go into the kind of silhouette battle scenes, yeah. mm-hmm. and how stunning does that costume look when seen in silhouette? Mm-hmm. And uh, gosh, um, Ian, you linked us to a thread on Twitter by the Bill and Ted Test, which was a very um, appropriate kind of costume design Twitter thread. Um, again, I'll link to them in the show notes. When I first saw the link um, that you'd sent, I, because it was called the Bill and Ted Test, I thought this must have been Keanu Reeves's audition, and it and it uh, and it will have some connection to Dracula. But obviously, it's not. The idea of the Bill and Ted Test is that in the first Bill and Ted film, there's a scene where with Beethoven, which is about five minutes long, where they go. Uh, uh, and to the time of Beethoven and witness a recital and the costumes are really um, ornate and beautiful and the the Bill and Ted test is basically does your film pass the test of are its Regency costumes as good as the five minute scene in Bill and Ted (laughs) Um, and then they do this lovely thread about Bram Stoker's Dracula unfortunately what it doesn't do unless i missed it is it doesn't tell you if the movie passes the test or not Aww. they just they just go on and like are amazed by the costumes i think it does pass i think i remember reading it passes somewhere <laughs> yeah cuz they kept pointing out this costume is is period inappropriate you know, by either 10 years or 1.200 years and things like that. But then they just go, yeah, but who cares? Yeah, <laughs> yeah they were tweeting on Halloween. Um, yeah. So it was, it was a big thread on Halloween. Um, but yeah, it's it really, again, just bouncing around Twitter, I can't even remember why I ended up seeing being directed to the Bill and Ted uh, test. It was about something completely different, and I just happened to scroll down and see Dracula. So serendipity. That's fantastic. No, it's real. It's a really interesting. Yeah, and it just really opens your eyes to because costume. I'm a typical boy. Costumes the side of the art, you know, 
the art department in general is something I kind of just take for granted. It's script and actors, and they yeah, forget, sometimes you forget music of a visual medium. <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> and there's that really interesting comment that that thread makes that I haven't read anywhere else that Coppola. You you might be able to attest to this, Kirsty. Coppola saw the costumes as being the production design of the film, so that's where he wanted to 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 put the money and and the design focus. Um, is that something you'd read? Um, yeah, well, it vaguely. Uh, yeah, yeah I've read, rings I've read a bell. Him yeah, jewels. His yeah. actors were his jewels, so he wanted to uh, ah, change right. from their cattle just. Do as I just do as you're told. <laughs> just do as you're told. But uh, no, they were his jewels. Yeah. He wanted to dress them. Yeah, and uh, and they certainly did. Stella, do you want to say anything about either the music or the costuming uh, before we move on? Only that I also want the red dress. <laughs> <laughs> quite, quite quite badly. Yeah, me too. <laughs> In, even from like thirteen-year-old yeah, me. Yeah. Right up to now, 39-year-old me I wonder, still desires with a passion yeah. that I, I wonder. I wonder if it's available anywhere. Like, like I wonder where it is, where it's ended up. Um, and then I wonder if it can be bought, how much it would cost and whether or not we could split it well, and do it at sort of a timeshare. Like, do, <laughs> do, yeah, do, do you want to go halves on yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, we'll go halves on it. Yeah, right. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> we, we can both sell our houses. Yeah, yeah. Fine. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Deal sorted. I think now is maybe the point to talk about the actors, then, because we, 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 you know, seem to be Burn. No, um, I love him. <laughs> you know what? This, this has reminded me of what I often think about Keanu Reeves. Have you, did you ever watch uh, Entourage, the TV series, not the films? Because the films are awful. I never no. saw either. The Entourage is an amazing HBO show. It's got a reputation for being a bit sexist because it's about sexist men. Um, and it, it kind of, but it has very strong female leads in it. Anyway, that's that's my defense for watching all of it. Um, but basically, there's Ari Gold, who's um, who's the agent in it. Um, he he's called Ari Gold, and he's um, he has this thing with his with his client, and the client just goes, the client wants to do worthy stuff, and he wants him to do a superhero movie, and he just sort of says to him. He goes, Ari, do you think I'm a good actor? And he goes, I think you're a great movie star. <laughs> <laughs> and it's uh, and I always oh. think of that when I see Keanu Reeves. He's not a great actor. No one can say he is. But he's so he's pretty, though. <laughs> but he's very pretty, yeah. <laughs> well, he's, he's the nicest person. man in Hollywood. He's I've, such a gentleman. I've, 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 he's I've, adorable. I've been, I've been sat in a room, just me and Keanu, and a publicist. Um, and he, <laughs> my main thing, and he's lovely and quiet and hates press. So I probably wasn't seeing his best life. But he was so uninteresting. Or most thing I can remember about him, beautiful as he is, is how nice his jumper was. And I don't, I don't I need him to talk late, to me. Late, <laughs> film, I think he was embarrassed. Do I? But um, right. I'll leave him alone. <laughs> I'll say this I mean, about he's Keanu. probably a lovely think... man, but but he's not. <laughs> he's, he's, there must be so many actors out there who just go. Well, I'll say this about him. I think he is a great movie star. I think the the way he moves and he speaks. He had to put you... glasses on him in the Matrix to make it, it... easier to film. Yeah. <laughs> 
Have you seen him in John Wick? The, you know, can I, can I can I interrupt here? I, I also have a, a, a Keanu Reeves um, encounter experience. Um, oh, not, I don't think as close as you, Ian. Um, so we were in New York a couple of years ago and um, uh, that we, we happened to, I was with students, um, walking them back to our hotel um, and we came across them shooting John Wick 3 and actually saw Keanu Reeves in actual... You know, kind of across wow. the street, having a having a break. He had he had hair grips in his hair to keep his hair away while he was smoking a cigarette. Anyway, stood with a bunch of students. I was going, oh my god, you know, it's like this is a big movie. Like, look at all the cameras and the cranes, and, and you know, look, there's Keanu Reeves and a kid next to me, seventeen, went, who's Keanu Reeves? Oh, for God's sake, oh, I should have pushed dear. him in front of a taxi. Oh, I know, we were just like <laughs> so disappointed. And then ran over to Keanu Reeves and <laughs> bitten him. Keanu. Just goes to show. Been in some I mean, great I, films. He's been in some great films, but he's not been the reason. Yeah. Like point break. No, I don't. Point break. I don't think he's a wonderful actor. I just love him. <laughs> I don't blame you for loving him, Stella. And I think he is he is fantastic in John Wick. He's become a great movie star. I think. I think there are limits to his acting range, <laughs> yeah. which is perfect in Bill and Ted. In John Wick, he's amazing with the fighting and and the moving. But if there are long speeches, you kind of wish that he wasn't talking. Um, in this film, though, I think only some of it's his fault. Um, I don't think he should have be, probably been in there. Um, certainly, they shouldn't have put him in a stupid wig. Or, you know, halfway through the film when he gets back from Dracula's castle and he's been so terrified. Maybe they just powdered his hair or whatever, but yeah. the point is it looks awful. And then... It really takes the film down a notch, though. I'm serious. For me, I know he's pretty, but <laughs> imagine anybody else of his generation that's pretty and also wouldn't be as wooden. Doctor, you must understand. I doubted everything. Even my mind. I was impotent with fear. I know. But, sir, I know where the bastard sleeps. I brought him there. To Carfax Abbey. Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio is, too, is a, bit, a bit younger, isn't he? He'd um, have been too young then, yeah. He'd have been too young. But, I don't know, Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, but here's the thing. I don't think mm. it matters because Gary Oldman just, you know... Gary Oldman is enough, I think, in terms of, you know, kind of acting talent and range and ability to... It just blows him <laughs> off just, the screen. It's like, it's, yeah. you know, it's like... I mean, we, well, obviously we're picking on Keanu Reeves, but don't, I mean, I think Richard E. Grant does a particularly good, good job. Um, but yeah. I think Carrie Hours and, um, is it Bill Campbell... Um, yeah, like they, you know, yeah. they might as well just not be there. They are there to look pretty um, in their, you know, kind of Victorian outfits. You know, but yeah, Gary Oldman is just though, because they're, they're they're kind of they're on a register that is we're supporting cast, therefore yeah. they are just they they're just fine at what they do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a little bit more central. Well, yeah, yeah. 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 So, so it really shows, and it really just it really takes it. Down. Can you imagine how good that film would be if it didn't have him in it? Well, well, I mean, it, has, it should remake it and CGI but somebody else. In. The other thing I think Ooh. is that he's, he's, <laughs> he's deep, deep fake someone else into it. But here's the thing: I think I don't think Jonathan Harker is a character. I don't think he needs to be particularly likable or alluring. I think particularly with this um, version, where you kind of go, you know what? Yeah, Gary Oldman. He seems like the more interesting and charismatic choice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
Um, I mean, I mean Mina's right, really, for a while. Go, yeah, that's true. Over. And and well, but you know what? I think, as I say, the positioning of him is problematic in the film because of the movie's general fidelity to the book. Most Dracula films, they either or both of the following two things: they either kill Jonathan Harker before he leaves Dracula's castle, or they write out uh, Arthur and Quincy or combine them or something so that it's all about Jonathan. Um, And in this movie, they keep all of those characters as they are in the book. And I think it's great that they have. I just wish the movie was 10 minutes longer so that you could could get to know those characters a bit. I mean, I think the three suitors of Lucy are perfectly cast. And because you've got... Bill Campbell from The Rocketeer, Carrie Elwes from The Princess Bride, and Richard E. Grant. <laughs> You've just got movie stars. It's perfect. You can't mix them up. Um, and Quincy, I noticed on this viewing, there's a great bit where he does the one-handed um, sawn-off shotgun reload thing yeah, that does. Arnold Schwarzenegger does in Terminator 2. <laughs> He's amazing. Um, you know, And also, I, I love the story, which... I think he's maybe a little bit more developed in the book, which is that these three guys love Lucy, and obviously they she dies, and they then have to cut her head off, but that bonds them so firmly. And Coppola obviously knew this because he, he put Elwis and Grant and Campbell on like a, a retreat um, so that they could really bond together. But you just don't get that in the film, except that, well, there's two things. There's one at the end of the movie when Quincy dies. It's quite moving for about half a second mm. that you see Rich D. Grant weeping over him. And then the other thing is, towards the end of the story, you know, for quite a long way, it's been the three guys together. And then Jonathan comes back from Romania and it becomes four guys. But it's kind of clear, just from looking at them, that the three guys know each other and he doesn't really know them or get on with them. But there's no scene or moment to really kind of articulate that relationship. Yeah. All his stuff is still focused on Mina only. And I, so I think that... Yeah, I was just going I did feel like it was galloping towards the end. And even though it's a massive movie, it could have done with, like you said, 10 more minutes or something. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. it's such an epic, we wouldn't have minded. Like, the fact mm. that you tell it, it's like... I hate it when movies do that, when it's like, we've, you know, even though it's set in olden times, we've teleported to Transylvania. You know, she's, she's zooming. Yeah. They don't even have a reunion scene. They just, just shows them getting married and it's all hurrying up with the voiceover. Um, yeah. Which is nice. I quite like the hints. Now, now that I am, now that I am married, uh, I know, I know, I know, I understand more of what I, what I desire from, of the count. So basically, She's ha- she's now lost her virginity to Keanu, and she'd rather go with Gary Oldman, as I'm sure everyone can identify with. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not, no. <laughs> Interesting interpretation. For me, now that Lucy is dead, it is a sad homecoming. It is as if a part of me is dead too, except for the tiny hope that lives in me, that I will again see my prince. Is he here? Now that I am married, I begin to understand the nature of my feelings for my strange friend. It was always in my thoughts. So let's take a minute 
to just talk about any other act of the actors. There's so many great actors in this movie. Um, uh, I, I just feel very strongly that um, any Dracula version has to have a, a good Dracula and a good Van Helsing. And this movie certainly does. And I think um, Oldman and Anthony Hopkins are eating the screen between them. But that doesn't mean that everybody else doesn't try to also eat it. And that's kind of one of the things... And uh, and when I say everybody else, I mean the costume designer, the music composer, and everybody in, in the crew. Um, and I think that's one of the things that makes the movie great. But... You know, everything that um, Van Helsing says pretty much is hilarious. Mm. Um, I was just laughing out loud. And also, like the great bit where um, uh, they're going into Carfax Abbey and he tells Quincy, Mr. Morris, your bullets will not harm him. He must be beheaded. I suggest you use your big bowie knife. Well, I wasn't planning on getting that close, Doc. And there's a beat, <laughs> and then Van Helsing just goes, Ha 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 ha! He's absolutely mental, and I think it's just brilliant. I, I, um, do, I do. He's the sexual politics of it are really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, obviously it's from the point of view, and Van Helsing's definitely an element of that. That bit where he does his Hannibal Lecter bit—I don't remember that from the first time I watched it. The bit where, What's he, the goes, Hannibal the bit where he's almost going. Oh yeah, he sniffs her. It's creepy as hell. Yeah, he's very <laughs> creepy. Yeah, yeah. Anybody. Yeah, yeah. My God. Dr. Van Helsing. You're Mina, dear friend, to our Lucy, yeah? She tells me of your beloved Jonathan Harker and your worry for him. Well, I to worry for all young lovers. The darkness is in life, my child, and there are lights. And you are one of the lights, dear Mina, the light of all light. Your I mean, what do you guys think? Well, before um, I, I, I let Ghosty and Stella comment, um, it do, I do remember from the making of that. I, you know, they were aware of that to some extent when making it. I think James V. Hart said that basically the image that you get from the book is of four guys with knives and stakes who are setting off on a mission to basically kill women. And they wanted to kind of, um, I, I, don't, I don't think not criticise that, but show it. Um, uh, so they were aware of that. But in terms of how it comes across in the movie, um, well, what do you think, Kirsty? Oh, I don't know where to start, really, because obviously, you know, I, I, I love this film very much. Um, and it was very, very formative um, in lots of different ways um, when I was younger. Um, and, you know, even when I was younger, I was aware of the kind of sexual content and the eroticism of it. Um, as 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 a, a more mature woman um, and indeed as a feminist, um, I struggle a little bit more with the representations that are there in, in that the film very much focuses on the idea of kind of, you know, female sexual agency in that Lucy's quite, you know, um, uh, quite forward and kind of overt about her own sexuality. Um, And then there's obviously the bit with the, you know, Arabian Nights at the beginning of the film and using kind of, you know, sex and sexual knowledge as a basis for kind of female bonding. Um, But the film seems to kind of condemn 
you know kind of women being able to you know kind of make their own choices <laughs> in terms of their sexuality um punishes them for that and then even when we do get a character who goes on a bit of a sort of transformative arc which you know kind of is meaner in terms of deciding what she wants you know ultimately you can always reduce that, that back down to or she's enthralled by the vampire so it's not you know it's not agency you know independence in her own right it's you know as a result of a male character um Mm. so we you know there are two very clear you know um and very colorful female characters in this but i don't think they're necessarily i mean they're very that my my kind of note i wrote down was is the very 90s yeah you know it's very 90s yeah yeah Yeah, they're not 1890s no it's 1990s Uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's, because of the love story aspect, there is more agency to Mina than she probably has in the book. Oh, yeah, um, but still. <laughs> but, but yeah, yeah, and, um, I mean, what do you think, Stella? Um, I agree with everything that Kirsty said. I also did always find, without really realising what it what it was that was bothering me before I could sort of formulate the thoughts properly when I was younger, that the most monstrous thing that happens, as far as I can kind of gather, is when Dracula brings his concubines a baby to yeah. eat. And that is, you know, pretty rum business. That is um, the, the the biggest moment of horror in the yeah. movie. What, and it's, that you'd you know, expect these... from, a movie, from a horror movie, yeah. Yeah. And it's it's what the sort of the sex crazed, unable to think clearly concubines get up to. And it's just a small thing, but I just remember being aware that they kill out of monstrosity where the the argument is that Dracula's doing it out of, yeah. out of love. So I don't know. I, yeah. I can't quite I don't know. Maybe it's not even a, a thing that's worth mentioning, but I I just always noticed that there that those women that Dracula keeps, they seem as particularly evil and with nothing else to them apart from their evilness. Yeah. And Dracula's wafting around, being in love and finding his missus again and doing all the interesting things. It's funny that um, the other really horrific moment for me in the movie is also featuring those three women. It's where they slaughter the horses. Mm. Mm. You know, and, and you don't even see that. It's just silhouetted. But it, it, it's kind of, again, and, and a lot due to kind of Van Helsing's reaction to it, um, that has a real power to it. I do think that, that, that Dracula is a bit monstrous at parts, and it's like, I think that, if they'd done another draft of the script and they'd re- and they thought, wait a minute, this guy's supposed to be the romantic hero, maybe we shouldn't have him, you know, killing Renfield by smashing him against prison bars for basically no reason. Exactly. Things like that, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, he does do some things which yeah, are not no, love motivated. That's, that's, I think, that's what we, so, we see, I, though, I, isn't I it? I think he's basically a creepy... He's a, you know, he's, 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 he's a serial killer, isn't he? And so he should be bad. And the bit is, should like Winona Ryder being in love with her, with him, like she's under his spell? Does it not occasionally feel like a rape fantasy, or we've got boring guy, 
and we've got man who'll take me by force and he's the sexy one yeah you know, he's very dodgy I mean, there's, there's a much, writer, yeah. But there's a there's a there's a bigger discussion though, isn't there, about the way that, um, and I'm I'm going to speak now as, as somebody who's absolutely kind of fallen, um, in love with or fallen foul of these kind of narratives throughout my whole life in the way the way in which kind of female fa- fantasy is packaged um, and sold to women as the thing that they want. Um, so I, you know, kind of you saying, oh, well, he should be a serial killer. For me, you know, I was sat here at the beginning saying, you know, I wouldn't be here without this this film. I also, I don't think, would be, you know, kind of in love with him writing about Hannibal if it wasn't for mm. this film. Not just because of its over baroque aesthetics, but because um, that Hannibal plays, a, you know, Hannibal the TV show plays, you know, with a similar kind of set of ideas um and uh relationship between the monstrous you know kind of you know the the killer um and the audience that in one way you know we are attracted to and want to see him succeed but on the other hand are repelled by him and you know obviously want him to face justice um yeah but there's yeah i think it's i think it's a it's a it's a com- more complex thing and i think as well if you think about the other sort of vampire kind of romance narratives that it's it's the same story isn't it as in the the male is is the vampire he's also of course a killer because it's part of his nature and that this is the gothic um and you know but we kind of all that it tends to be sort of played down and the romance is foregrounded and the woman understands his monstrosity and is able to in some ways kind of soothe and placate him you know it's just you know that's why twilight made me furious though because it's like she excuses his violent behavior because he can't help himself and when in in twilight when they first have sex and she's covered in bruises afterwards yeah. because he's so violent with her but it's excused and it's like well if you took the word vampire out of it and put in guy yeah. who lives on a council estate yeah. and drinks loads of beer yeah. then it would be entirely yeah. unreasonable yeah. and the same thing plays out in 50 shades of gray yeah. it's okay for him to want to slap her around because he's a millionaire yeah so it's like yeah, yeah absolutely not it's not okay and it it, it keeps permeating through the culture because it's this the idea of the dreamy guy who's really unattainable and he's is this incredible fantasy being but you know yeah it's is just saying a big do come in to domestic violence yeah, and it's yeah. Not, so many, it's not so many things aimed at women and i'm saying this obviously from the point of view of a man but it seems <laughs> to be especially in the vampire thing it seemed to be you know in twilight you'd get to choose between sleeping with a dog a wolf or whatever he is or a dead person <laughs> Um, the beast or the boring one, and in this Dracula, if she's got Dracula, who's very sexy and violent, and would slap her about, or boring old Keanu Reeves. Keanu's not looking so bad now, is he? Hey, no. <laughs> you know that, that whole. Do you want a bad boy? Do you want to save her? Be, you know all that. You know that very seems very reductive. Yeah, but it's a servant servant master type thing, isn't it? True blood as well. She yeah. gets. You know, they steer her into, do you, you know, it's two vampires, but one of them's dangerous and one of them's a bit straight. You know, even, even even between two vampires, it becomes, you know, that thing of having a choice. Yeah. It's, it, it takes the agency, even though the women, the women are at the centre, it seems to take away their agency because what they need for completion is is which 
do you choose a boring guy or you know who are you going to marry is this where we still are yeah sadly i remember my friend trying to get me to read twilight when it not long after it first came out and i resisted and i resisted for ages and she was like read it 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 reminds you of being 17 so i was like right for god's sake so i read it and i remembered what she said it reminds you of being 17 and i was like yeah being 17 and making really bad decisions i don't want to be reminded of that (laughs) whatsoever and and i i also tried to read 50 shades of gray because it was everywhere she was like probably don't slag it off without reading it and i did read it and at one point i threw it across the room so it hit a wall because it was so bad (laughs) just awful did you read the whole thing no i got about three quarters of the way through and was just like fuck Mm. this i can't (laughs) can't can't harry potter got popular have i been so depressed by a by, by the literal <laughs> success of something than Fifty Shades of Grey. Well, yeah. I was in school at the time, and all these teachers, only only female teachers, are all reading it, and it was just like, and then you'd open it and start reading a bit, and they'd get all embarrassed. It's just, it's not even that erotic. It's just dog shit. It is entirely dog shit. Yeah. Are we ever gonna do a Fifty Shades of Grey podcast? No. No. <laughs> You're not um, gonna make me watch that film. My 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 friend did <laughs> that and just said. This isn't just porn. This is M&S porn. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, without having seen the film, that just seems to sum it up perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> so I am I'm conscious that we are coming a little bit towards the end of our time. And I think there's loads more that we would all want to say about this movie. So I think it might be a thing that we release a Bram Stoker's Dracula bonus at some point. Um but to yeah. give our discussions today a bit of shape, I think if we go through the last couple of things um, to round off, um, I just wondered um, what thoughts everybody has about the what do you think the motivation or the functionality is by the f- the fact that they obviously decided fairly early on to not attempt visual realism and to go for that stylized. Um, kind of impressionist representation of everything. I mean, I read something that um, Coppola decided to shoot uh, all the interiors on the soundstage because he wanted to bring the film in on budget and, and therefore if you did it inside, you wouldn't have the weather issues which could cause shooting delays. But I don't think that explains everything. And and also, I think that the stylization of, of everything is, to, is to such that... You couldn't even accidentally think it was real. You know, the model train at the beginning Mm -hmm. that takes Keanu to Transylvania and things like that. It's beautiful and uh, and the imagery is great, but it's just not real. Um, I wonder if we had any thoughts of of what the film's doing there. Stella, do you want to start? Yeah, well, I know that Coppola... Am I saying that right? You are. Coppola. He fired the VFX team because they said the shots he wanted could not be done or could not be accomplished without modern or modern at the time digital tech. So he fired them and then he hired his son, who was only 24 at the time. Imagine that. Roman Coppola. Roman. I know that's a good, strong name. And so Mm. they shot all the visual effects and they they did it in camera or sort of practically and on set. Um, And in, in an interview with Coppola that I saw with both of them, they were both saying that they wanted to rely on these tried and tested techniques that went back to like early days of cinema to sort of develop this notion of authenticity about the film. So, and you know, like you said, the results are beautiful and at times they're quite surreal. Like when um, 
Harker is picked up by the coach and the, the arm just sort of stretches and pulls him in. Yeah. And, um, so it explains oh, how gosh. they did that. The guy on the sat on the coach is just sort of slid across on a big plank and then pulled back. <laughs> right. um, yeah. And the bit where where Jackie the first sees Mina in the street and it's done it's done through a really, really old camera. They got a really old old, old, old camera and filled it filmed it properly. So mm. um so, so I th- yeah, I think it's just about the notion of authenticity and that the traditional methods and the analog methods and the camera tricks and all that stuff just made it a more authentic sort of gothic piece, I think. And it and it continues um, just sort of the age old traditional methods of cinema that they wanted to get in, given that they were using and basing it on a traditional, authentic horror slash gothic text. So I think it just it ties into that, I think. And I think it does help. But. Because we've all talked about how we watched it when we were younger and we watched it now and things that we didn't notice. When I watched it when I was younger, I didn't notice how maybe perhaps rickety some of it looked or I didn't notice that that train was a model. I didn't notice the Mm. matte paintings were quite as matte as they were. I did when I was 20. Right. And we were a bit... like I was 12. But (laughs) but yeah, but I didn't also. I was too ignorant to realize they'd made a massive aesthetic decision yeah even if he did start from the point of view of i've got a really bad reputation for going over budget yeah you know um there is a skein of the history of cinema in the movie Mm. there is the cinematograph in the movie the Mm. the production company is called zoetrope for god's sake kirsty what do you want to say i I was just gonna i wanted to build on what stella was saying about that kind of that analog and that kind of cinematic history but that idea that and i think again this is not i didn't pick up on the time because i had no frame of reference back then but the way in which the film is is you know kind of often ref you know it references nosferatu so heavily um yeah. in some of the you know they're kind of rising out the coffin the use of the kind of you know him in the yeah. doorway and there's loads of other things that you know particularly in that early part of the film as harker travels to you know kind of transylvania and and to the castle and all of that kind of stuff um that um and even you know the bit with the ship kind of echoes you know a lot of that um of nosferatu so i think in terms of the the overall kind of aesthetic and the style of the piece is of being kind of um you know kind of obviously constructed is that in one way it that sort of although although Murnau shot on location kind of you know willingly um it it does echo the kind of the German expressionist you know kind of style Mm. um and the whole kind of you know the, the way that that film is quite I always find when I watch it it's very hypnotic because of the the way it uses editing and the way it uses in camera stuff and I think that there's that that Bram Stoker's Dracula attempts the same thing, that it becomes like a beautiful, you know, nightmarish dream. Um, and I was thinking as well about the way in which the, you know, the, the, the absinthe becomes quite important as well in the story and that idea of kind of, oh, yeah. you know, sort of hallucination um, mm. uh, also kind of feeds into the, the visual style. I think it's, you know, it's, it's not, it's meant to be baroque and fantastic and you know and stylish yeah. because yeah. erotic yeah. dream was sort of his starting point wasn't it yeah that was his aim, to make an erotic dream and i think he definitely succeeded mm-hmm. yeah um but it's weird you'd, you'd maybe look at the movie if you didn't know if you just knew a bit about movies well, you didn't know much about movies and you just happened to have never heard of this and watch it you probably you might date it like several decades different mm. yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah you might say oh is this because there's 
bits that remind me of Gone with the Wind and all those sort of huge yeah. studio movies where I used to love watching them as a kid because you could tell they were fake. You could tell yeah. that swamp yeah. or that forest was in a studio and it kind of added to the yeah, yeah, yeah. movie. And yeah. I think I, mean, I think I think now I think it's a the fact that you can see, you know, you can see that those mountains are painted on glass. It's kind yeah. of like delicious. It's, uh, yeah, it's yeah. a beautiful film. I mean, I, I wonder if he basically thought because and um, I think you're completely right about the Nosferatu connection, Kirsty. But I, I wonder if he thought that actually that kind of expressionism runs throughout Gothic cinema. You know, it's in it's obviously in the other German expressionist films. It's in the Universal horror movies. It's in the Hammer films to an extent, although mainly because they couldn't afford to go outside a lot. Um, and I think, actually, there are not so many notable, realistic, gothic horror movies. And I think maybe he thought, you know, I think that people knew it was fake in the 20s and the 30s and the 50s, and they didn't mind then. It worked then, so I'm going to do it now. But um, I do think it's interesting that the later films in the 90s gothic cycle that we're going to talk about, none of them have this kind of visual aesthetic. No. They all go for realism. Um, and with with degrees of success, as we'll talk about. A film that I think I watched not long before, I watched Dracula, because I love my vampires, was, was um, Near Dark, which yeah. is like aesthetically the opposite. And so yeah. maybe in my 20-year-old head, I was like, well... Well, this just looks so fake, man, and the script. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> can't act, and that's all I saw. Um, yeah. yeah, but uh, yeah, now I, now I, now I know what he was doing. But maybe he yeah. did sort of go, "What's my aesthetic?" And then he started from a point of, "I don't want to go over budget. Let's not go outside at all. Let's completely control." The we process. don't want to mess up Keanu's hair. <laughs> I remember, I remember reading in. Richard E. Grant's diaries, I think, that yeah, I've read those. those. That he, that Coppola, they hardly saw him because he sat inside a sort of control booth with loads of monitors on, and that was how mm. he directed people over microphones and stuff. Um, so he had complete, you know, mad scientist. Um, Gave ideas to ultra, George ultra, Lucas. Ultra con- the opposite of Apocalypse <laughs> Now. He had utter control over every single aspect. Um, uh, no, like CGI that needed to come in later or anything. There was no digital. It's amazing. It's, so, can I see it on the monitor? Yes or no? I love it all in camera. Okay, so we're we're getting closer to the end, everybody. Um, I just want a very quick final question about Dracula, then, um, and I'm just going to ask for a couple of sentences from each of you on this simple question. So. Since Bram Stoker's Dracula happened in 1992, do we need another Dracula, or did that do it? Kirsty? Um, I think that did it, so I'd say no, but then I'd also say yes, and I'm probably going to... I don't intend to steal any of Stella's thunder, but I think there's always scope for reinterpretations, and you know, particularly as the world moves on um, and our kind of frames of reference change. Um, why not... Fair enough. Stella? Well, yeah, obviously. Um, (laughs) Because you know that I'm a big proponent of the the remake and the reboot. um, And, you know, 
things need to be updated sometimes because of perhaps questionable gender politics or, or anything that happens in films. And, you know, if something's a good story, then tell it again, I reckon. Nice one. Ian? Um, I'd say definitely. I thought um, Stephen Moffat and, um, and uh, Mark, Gettys. Mark, Mark, Mark Gettys had got there with the TV version. Because I thought Sister Agatha as a central character was fantastic. Yes. And then they fucked it up. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll do a whole other episode about yeah, that. We'll save that. I, th- I think I'd agree with everything everybody just said. And um, good luck, Karen Kasama, yes. who's currently directing her version. Yeah. So isn't, isn't that yeah. going to be great? I'd like to see what would happen if you made it Countess Dracula and swapped every gender. And what yeah. would that do? Oh, that's really interesting. Mina was... I don't know, Will, because it's, it's <laughs> yeah. Wilk, it's Wilhelmina, yeah. isn't it? If he was, if, 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 yeah, if Mina was William, and yeah. just swap everybody, what does it say about, you know? Yeah, also, it you know, it's, it's always historically yeah. been a very white, been a very white story as well, so, yeah. Well, yeah, that's why he said historically. But one is enough, is it? Oh, gosh, there's so much I want to say, but um, we don't have time. Okay, so we come to the end of of that very enjoyable chat about Bram Stoker's Dracula. It's been such a pleasure. So this podcast has completely opened my eyes to something I probably wouldn't have looked at, and I'm going to buy the DVD with lots of pictures on it. Brilliant. It's just... It's an amazing film. Oh, twenty year olds are idiots. That's the conclusion. (laughs) (laughs) That's a wonderful, wonderful concluding note. Um, So, have we got very quickly? Have we got any recommendations? I've got a very, very quick one. Okay. Okay. So, very quickly, I know we've said it before, and we've recommended it before, and we've talked about it ad nauseum before. But Host is now, you know, on a wider release, um, and it's available on uh, all major platforms. So, it's available on Amazon and through the Sky Store, and you know, in other places as well. So, if you haven't already seen it, check it out. Come on, people. Yeah. 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 February twenty second. All right. Um, finally reviewed it and said it was great. Um. My recommendation, very quickly, kind of connects to our discussion of kind of aesthetic false horror and the traditions of Impressionism. The the 1946 film Black Narcissus is a connection in my love of gothic horror and cinema. And the BBC have gone ahead and remade it, the idiots. And it's <laughs> going to be on this Christmas. So I haven't seen it and I don't know if it's any good. Um, but I do know that it's on and it's got Diana Rigg in it. Must be her last acting role. Um, I, so I believe I'm going to watch it. So I believe um, uh, All Creatures Great and Small was her last acting role. Yeah, that's what I heard, yeah. Oh, oh really? Oh, she, I didn't know she was in that. The, the Channel 5 remake of All Creatures. Don't, don't. It's not very on brand, but I recommend that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Me too. My mum loves it, actually. Watch Fried Barry and then go and watch All Creatures Great. <laughs> that will cleanse you of all the scuzziness. That's a perfect double bill. Okay. Thank you so much, my friends. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Kirsty. Thank you, Stella. Thank you, Ian. Thank you, listeners. Bye. Bye. You have been listening to And Now the Podcast Starts. Produced and released by Ambidextrous Solutions Limited. Presented by... Kirsty Warrow, T.D. Velasquez, Stella Gaynor, and Ian Winterton. 
Special thanks to Greg Hume for our original theme music and to Brian Gorman for our original artwork. All dialogue and music clips from films, TV shows, and trailers are used for the purposes of criticism in the spirit of fair dealing as defined in UK law and fair use as defined in US law. No copyright infringement is intended. Please visit our home on the web, www.andnowpodcast.com for more content and contact details. Or visit our Facebook pages at andnowpod or at leecushingpod. Follow us on Twitter at andnowpodcast or at leecushingpodcast. If you'd like to donate to us, please visit patreon.com forward slash and now podcast and now the podcast stops <laughs>